Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, our desire is that uh, we would please you, our, our, our thoughts and our hearts today. We have come to worship today. And Lord, uh, we have sung your praise. We have read scripture together. We have shared and meditated. And Lord, as we look into your word and share communion together, may this just be a time where your name is uplifted, where you receive the honor and glory, and that uh, we will leave this place rejoicing in the hope and the good, good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we share in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning, uh, we are going to be sharing communion together. And there, uh, just in case you're visiting or maybe you're newer to our church and you haven't uh, been with us for a communion service before, I uh, just want you to know that it's, it's uh, anybody who knows Christ as Savior, you are welcome to share in communion with us. Uh, this is not to be a member of our church but uh, to belong to God's church, the church, the body of Christ. If you know Christ as your Savior, uh, you are welcome to share in communion. Later in the service, um, we, t- we take a little bit of time and our ushers come, or excuse me, our elders come, and they will share the uh, bread with you first and then the uh, cup, the juice as well. We will share it together. So uh, you are welcome to share in communion if you know Christ as your Savior. In preparation for that, as we also continue our thoughts from the book of Acts, I would like to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 26. We've already read a significant portion of it, and so as we prepare to consider it further, I want to ask you a question this morning. We're a Christian church, an evangelical Christian church, and um, I don't know all of you individually. I think I know just about all of you, though. And I'm confident that you know Christ as Savior, and or most of you do. And so as part of the household of God, as part of the Christian church, if we were to think for a minute, <clears throat> sort of collectively, about the Christian church and the work of Christ and the work of the gospel, and if you were to think for you, who do you think represents people or a person, or a group of people who are most opposed to Christianity, who do their most to stop the work of Christ, who are the most anti, uh, who, would, who would come to your mind? You don't need to say it, but I'm just asking you to think for a minute. Who would come to your mind? In your particular case, it may be an individual. It may be someone in your life, in your context that God has put, who is very much opposed to you as a Christian. You might be thinking in terms of politics. You might be thinking in terms of uh, those who uh, maybe around the world, you know, as, as, uh, as we hear our missionaries share from different uh, places and, and also um, uh, uh, countries where physically people are being killed, persecuted for being a Christian. If you were to think in your context, who do you represent either a person or a group, who represents the most opposition to our Christian faith and to the work of the gospel, who would that be? Okay? And then, if you were placed, if you had the privilege of standing before 
Supreme Court of America, Supreme Court of Washington State, some type of context where you had an opportunity to address that person, that group, or that mindset, and you had one opportunity to speak before those who have authority, what would you say? Now, in today's context, uh, while you were talking, uh, there will be people tweeting <laughs> what you're saying, uh, emailing, uh, texting, and you could assume that what you're going to say is going to be all over the place. And uh, here's, here is your chance to put it straight, to deal with it. What would you say? I want to suggest to you that in Acts chapter 26, Paul is in that situation. We looked at chapter 25 as we came to the conclusion of it, that Paul is, just for a quick recap, Paul has been in prison, been under arrest, not in a dungeon, but he is in prison. He's He's been set aside for two years in Caesarea. He was left there. He was left there by the Roman governor. And when a new governor, a new Roman governor, uh, comes to Caesarea to meet Festus, when, when, when Festus is, is taken over from Felix, and, and he now inherits the Apostle Paul who is in prison, and he wants to do something with him, and Paul has appealed his case to the Roman Supreme Court, to Caesar's court, And Festus, who is now the new governor and has received Paul as a prisoner after two years, and King Agrippa comes down to visit him, and Festus and King Agrippa confer and decide that they are going to give Paul a chance to speak before the Roman council, between the Roman government, if you will, and the Jewish leaders who have come down to accuse Paul, come from Jerusalem, and they are going to give Paul the opportunity to speak. Now, I want you to stop and think for a minute about who Paul is speaking to. In chapter 26, verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Now, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to the the official Roman governor, is in the audience, Festus, but he's talking to King Agrippa. Now, I want you to think for a minute what Agrippa represents. If we took the first century context of the Christian church, And if you were to ask a a Christian in Palestine, in Judea, and surrounding area, who comes to mind in opposition to what we are trying to do, it's possible the family of the Herods would come to mind. Agrippa is the last of the Herod dynasty. After this, Agrippa II dies, the dynasty of the Herod rule in Palestine comes to an end. Let's review a little bit of this opposition. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. We'll go back to the beginning of the Christian story. Matthew chapter 24. 
And the context, as we know so well from our Christmas readings and and, uh, celebration, is when the wise men from the east come, the Magi, and they come and they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod finds out, King Herod, when he finds out that they have come, and of course is insanely jealous that a new king has, has arisen in Israel because he called himself king of the Jews. Herod was, his father had been forced, converted during the time between the Testaments. He was an Idumean from Edom, and he had been forced, converted. So this family are Jews by conversion. But he also called himself the king of the Jews, and he endeared him, tried to endear himself to Jews in Palestine, And yet he was a very, very wicked and sinful man. This King Herod had his own wife and two of his own sons killed because of his jealousy. And when the Magi tricked him, if you will, when they left and did not come and tell him where Jesus was, we read in verse 16, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And because of this, Jesus' family has has fled to Egypt because of Herod the Great. And this man is so ruthless that throughout Bethlehem and its vicinity, Bethlehem is just six or seven miles from Jerusalem, Every baby two years and under is slaughtered with the sword by the Roman government because of Herod and because of his jealousy and hatred and his opposition to what God is doing. He would have slew Jesus if he could have, but he was gone. He was in Egypt. There weren't many of Jesus' age in Bethlehem When he came back to Judea, there was a generation, a part of a generation that was missing because they were all slaughtered by Herod the Great, King of the Jews, as he called himself. In Mark, turn a few pages in your gospel to, to the gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 6, When Jesus was in his ministry and many people were being healed and power was going forth, it says in verse 14, King Herod heard about this. Well, this new King Herod is a son, Herod Antipas. And this son of Herod the Great, who is now in charge of this area, Here's about Jesus' name and it was well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet. When Herod heard this, verse 16, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. He married his brother's wife. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not law for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias nursed a grudge against John, wanted to kill him. Well, as the story develops, the daughter comes and dances for this Herod. And he is so pleased and so foolish that he says, you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. And she goes back to consult with her mother. And we see in verse 24, she went and asked her mother, what shall I ask for? 
And she said, the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried to him with the king to the request, I want you to give me right now, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner's orders to bring John's head. John the Baptist, who fulfilled the promise of, of, of the Old Testament, the one who would come to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would introduce the Messiah, the one who those who were following him believed he would continue up until the time that the Messiah was revealed and be part of that publicity, part of that acclamation, part of that, uh, that sign that points to him. John the Baptist had many, many followers. John the Baptist was a man who, who, who spoke truly the word of God. In fact, the Herod Antipas liked to hear him and, and, and was sympathetic, if you will. And yet he had him beheaded and brought his bloody head on a platter at this banquet and brought it in and presented it as a gift, as a gift. This man was so ruthless. And this word spread throughout the community of those who were following John the Baptist, his disciples. And Jesus himself, when he heard it, went away to a private place, his, 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 his cousin, his family member, the one who had come to proclaim him, Herod had slaughtered. In Luke chapter 23, we come toward the end of Jesus' life. And in Luke chapter 23, as we will be celebrating soon on Good Friday and Easter and these passages that are so well known. And before Pilate, who could find no charge, he says in verse 4, Pilate, after interviewing Jesus, says, if I, find no, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they continue to accuse him. And when Pilate, verse 6, heard this, that he was from Galilee, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's, this is our same Herod who beheaded John, Herod Antipas, he sent to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him, that is Jesus, with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. This man who beheaded John the Baptist, questioning the Son of God. And he gave him no answer. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And notice, Herod and his soldiers, that is, he, he, was, he had guards with him. He was in charge of them. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends because before this, they had been enemies. And this scene of Jesus being uh, abused and being beat and hit and the robe put on him was under Herod's authority. The Herod, the son of Herod the Great. And then as we have studied the book of Acts together, we saw in Acts chapter 12, a very short explanation but during this time that, 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 that Peter had been put in prison, but we see in chapter 12 and verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. This is another Herod, Herod Agrippa, another descendant of Herod the Great. And this Herod, 
He had James, verse 2, the brother of John, that is John the disciple, John the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation, put to death with the sword. And we looked at this together. That while Peter is miraculously spared from prison, John, one of the, the inner three, if you will, Peter, James, and John were the three closest to our Lord Jesus Christ. They were the three who were called up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They were like the inner core of the disciples who were closest to him. And the first to be put to death, cut off his head, was James, the brother of John, by King Herod. It's the Herod family who were the nemesis, if you will, who were the ones who have caused the most destruction for the church from the authority standpoint for the, for the Jewish believers. It's the story of Jesus. And then we come to Acts chapter 26. And we have the last of the Herods. And the Apostle Paul is given an opportunity to deal with this man publicly. Here is a time to set the record straight. Here is a time to let all know what he thinks of this Herodian dynasty and what they have done to Christ, to John the Baptist, to other Christians, to James, the brother of John, and now to confront the Apostle Paul. What should he say? What would he say? What would you say if you were had an opportunity to address the person you felt was the most destructive to what you believed. We're not going to read it all because we read a lot of it. Earlier in the service, Trainer read to us Paul's recounting of his story. I'd like you to look at verse 19. As we come toward the end of Paul's story, Paul says, and you notice he speaks to King Agrippa, to Herod, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead, and I want you to notice these two things, the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, the Roman governor, Festus, jumps in and screams out of Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. The Apostle Paul who was a rabbi, a scholar, a Pharisee, very learned man, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Festus jumps in and says, Paul, you have gone mad. And it's your learning that has driven you mad. You've read too much. You've studied too much. You've gone off the edge. You've gone mad. And this is interesting. Why did he jump in at this point? Why did he jump in at this point and accuse Paul of, of, of going insane? And you, you've, just, you've gone over the edge, Paul. I want to suggest to you, as we've seen through the book of Acts on more than one occasion, the parts of Paul's message that were so controversial, that were so challenging. Number one, the resurrection of the dead. Remember what he had said? He had said earlier 
He said, this man, this man, Paul, he's preaching about, he believes that this dead man, Jesus, is alive again. This was so ridiculous to the Roman and Greek mind, the idea of a physical resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did. Part of the audience here did believe in a resurrection. But when he mentioned the resurrection, and the second thing he mentioned, you notice the last thing he says, I was sent to proclaim light to the Jews and to the Gentiles. For the second time we've seen in the book of Acts, in his last section of the book of Acts, that when Paul dares to say, I'm taking this gospel message to the Gentiles, it comes to an end. This is so ridiculous. This is so crazy that this man would think he's taking this Jewish faith and this part of what they consider just an internal Jewish issue, but he has taken it and trying to convert Gentiles to it and put these two together, the resurrection of the dead and the conversion of Gentiles. And Festus says, Paul, you have, you, you have gone off the edge. You're crazy. You're crazy. I want you to notice what Paul's response is. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, verse 25. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, Paul dares in this Roman court situation, he dares to turn his attention to King Herod, Herod Agrippa II. And he turns to him and says, King, you're familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. Festus, I I appreciate you don't understand this. But I want to talk to King Herod. He knows about the Jewish faith. His his great-grandfather was the king of the Jews. He understands. I am convinced, King Herod, none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And he turns to King, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? Can you imagine that? To turn to the king. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And look at King Herod's response, King Herod Agrippa. Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response, short time or long, I pray God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And the discussion's over. He's done. His testimony is cut off. What would you say if you had the opportunity? What did Paul say? Paul had one concern. Before him stood a man, two men, who had an eternity in front of them. They would be saved or they would be lost. In that audience were a lot of people listening who were in the same boat. Today, it's the same. They would be saved or they would be lost. And Paul had one concern. Paul was not concerned about setting the record straight with what Herod's family had done. Paul had one concern. King Herod, I beg you, I don't care if it takes a paragraph, a testimony, or it takes years. I beg you, come to Christ and be saved. That's all he cared about. That's all that mattered. And it really wasn't that hard. 
Because you see, the Apostle Paul knew where he came from. He had just told them the story. And I want to close with this before we have communion. If you look at 1 Timothy, one of Paul's last epistles, after Paul's imprisoned again, this is why Paul had this burning heart for whoever he saw, friend or foe, relative or non, Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or slave, it didn't matter. He had one passion for them. For every person that stood in front of him had an eternal destination. And every person who stands before us, who hears us, who listens to the word today, every person, whether they're opposed to you, whether they agree with you, whether they cause your life misery, it could be a neighbor, it could be a relative, it could be a friend, it could be a group, whatever it is, don't ever forget they still have before them eternity. And when all is said and done, what matters the most, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, what would it gain a person if they could gain the whole world but lose their own soul? And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, verse 15, Here is a trustworthy saying, and it deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the chief. I am the first in line. Christ died on the cross and paid for sin, allowed Herod, who he could have taken out like that. He could have called a thousand angels, as he said. But he allowed the Herod to pepper him with questions, the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. He allowed Herod to mock him. He allowed Herod to put a robe on him. He allowed himself to be abused and finally be killed that horrible death on the cross at Calvary. He did it, Paul says, for one reason, to save sinners of whom I am the first in line. Even though, he goes on previously in verse 13, he says, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me. And Paul says, it was for this reason. I am the worst, and I am saved. And here he says, verse 16, for the very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And friends, there is no soul today who is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no person in your life, there is no person who is so opposed, there is no person who is so angry about the gospel, there is no person who cares the least about it that is beyond the scope of God's grace and mercy if they would turn and receive Christ as their Savior. And the message that Paul, his last message in Palestine, his last message in Jerusalem area, before he goes to Rome, is King Herod, I don't care if it's a sentence or a year, it doesn't matter to me, all I care about is that you would come to Christ. That you would come to Christ. You would become like me, except for these chains. 
It didn't matter how much authority he had. It didn't matter if they could have called Paul out and had him beaten and whipped. If they, could have, if they, if they said, how dare you talk to the king that way and punished him, condemned him, turned around and said, you're not going to Rome. We, we, we are not going to allow that. Paul didn't care. And I ask you this morning, friends, as we come and receive communion together, what matters most about the people in your life and in our world, in our community, in our culture, saved or lost? Eternity is what matters. And when all is said and done, I, I pray and I hope that my first concern, my first concern is about salvation. And everything else finds its place under that. I'm going to invite you to share communion with us today and to just remember the price that was paid for you. If you know Christ as Savior, as you receive these elements today, I'm going to invite, we're going to sing a song first together, right? All right, let's sing a song together and prepare our hearts as we do so. I want you to contemplate where would you be today without the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to invite our elders to come forward at this time. We're going to serve to you the bread and as you continue to contemplate and meditate the cross of Jesus Christ, we call it the wonderful cross. And yet, in the Roman world, it was the most despicable, horrible, ridiculous way for anybody to die. But it's how our Lord and Savior died to pay for our sins. Christians throughout the ages have been gathering across the continents, sometimes under persecution, sometimes as we do in freedom today, and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We join our hands and our hearts with our brothers and sisters around the world as we once again acknowledge the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, that beautiful body, fully God and fully man, without sin, that willingly went to the cross at Calvary. And before he did, he served his brothers, the disciples, broke the bread, and he said, take this bread, eat it. This is my body. It's broken for you. Let's eat together and just have a moment of quiet prayer and reflect. His body was broken for you and for me. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us, how much you loved us to go to the cross of Calvary, to provide for us salvation. This cup that we hold in our hand today is just simply a reminder. It doesn't do anything for you. It's not going to save you. It's not going to change you. But we believe it is a reminder. It's part of our worship time together. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church that he received from the Lord and he passed it on to them that the night the Lord was betrayed, that he took the bread and the cup. And he said to do this, to drink this. And once again, we join our brothers and sisters around the world in proclaiming together that this little cup is just a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ. The apostles saw it drained from his body. They knew it had been spilt for them. And the cross... That night, the Lord cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. The Apostle Paul says, I didn't know what I was doing. But God's grace and mercy was shown to me, 
so that all who come after me can freely receive forgiveness for sins. We drink this cup today. The Apostle Paul said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns again. Let's drink together and hold the cup for a moment of silent and quiet prayer. I'm reminded each time we share communion together, the empty cup reminds us of the empty tomb. The story is not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection, the victory of life over death, your victory over the pain and sorrow of death. And we thank you today that we are a people who genuinely have hope through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much again for your love for us, your kindness and compassion shown every day to us. And we thank you this day that we can celebrate this Lord's Supper together. In Christ's name we pray. The Bible tells us that clear back in the Old Testament, the psalmist looking ahead he said, our sins can be removed as far as the east is from the rest, the west, from those who know God, who love Christ. The Bible tells us our sins can be forgiven so we can be as white as snow. As we leave this place today, I hope you're rejoicing in the fact that your sins have been forgiven. The Herods, King Herod, had the opportunity to have all of his sins forgiven. I don't know what he did with that. Don't know. It's to him and God. I don't know, but he had that opportunity. And friend, you have that opportunity today as you leave this place to receive Christ as your Savior, to know your sins are forgiven, to know that you are going to heaven and that you will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Christ as your Savior. He died for you. He loves you. He paid for your sins. Receive his payment for your sins and become part of the family of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you. These few moments that we can just meditate today quietly and also triumphantly in the hope of the gospel, the good news that you love us, that Jesus Christ came and died for us. And nobody, nowhere, no place is outside the scope of your love and grace and mercy if they simply will turn to Christ and receive the message of salvation. We thank you for your care for us. We thank you for your guidance. As we leave this place today, we pray that we might truly walk with you and our lives might be an example of the grace and mercy that you have put in our hearts. May eternity always be the first thing on our hearts and our minds as we walk with you. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen.